G'day, citizens of the people's game. Welcome to another bumper episode of the pod. I am joined, as ever, to wrap up round 18 with your favourite sporting nuffies. Casey Simons, welcome. Thanks for having me back in the podcast. Doctor Casey Simons, really. I'm sorry for the mistake. And Gordon, you're here as well, mate. How are you? Yes, that's uh, Mr. Gordon Meredith to you, Jamie. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Not a, not a master? Uh, no. no. No, I believe I'm a of age man. Not a, um, a sir? Not knighted? Not yet. Not, not Sir Ben Stokes? I'm waiting on that. Also not uh, New Zealander of the Year, Ben Stokes. Which is truly phenomenal. The best. Uh, you couldn't take the piss any more than You couldn't that. be more New Zealand than giving the All Vanquisher the ultimate award for the year. That's very Kiwi areas. It's, they're too nice sometimes. I kind of am taking the Brad Haddon stance on this one. You don't make the man New Zealander of the year. Anyway, how was your weekend in footy case? My weekend in footy was great. I had a great weekend. I think we all kind of did. What a great weekend of footy. I got the chance to take some Americans to see some footy, not live. Um, we couldn't go to a game because there was no game in Melbourne on Friday night and they flew out on Saturday. But you know but what you did on Friday instead? To go to the footy pub. No, you watched Anthony McDonald Tippin oh, playing God. footy. I should have. I should have picked up on that. We did watch Anthony McDonald Tippin Woody play footy and didn't he play some excellent footy? Um, but yeah, I took my mates to a footy pub, the Rose Hotel in Fitzroy, which I think is, if you can't go to the G to watch the footy, I think is the next best thing because it's great vibes in there, good fun, and what a game of footy to watch. I thought it was actually going to be... Uh, no, I knew it was going to be evenly matched. I mean, those two sides are up and about and fighting for finals. So there's a lot on the line for those two teams. But, I mean, i am just been a bit uninspired by both sides recently until we went to see Essendon North Melbourne last weekend, which was awesome. So I actually got around it a bit. It was a lot of fun. Got around um, the Dons. Got around like, the Dons. Like all good people. Gordon, what about you? How was your weekend in footy, mate? Yeah, very much. I very much enjoyed watching that. I was at the Tote, which I think is an underrated footy pub. Don't You don't need to ask because I had an amazing weekend and I've eaten. <laughs> I've decided that I'm having all the pies. Tonight. Fair enough. So you are not having a single pie. It was JB. JB ate all the pies, much like uh, Mr. Mustard with a wrench in the kitchen. So my first hot pie for the weekend was the Alice Springs game. Mm-hmm. Um, the West Coast Eagles, and you're going to love this case because I'm a little bit in love with the Eagles at the minute. I'm so it already. There was so much in this. So footy in the top end, uh, footy in Alice. So there was a lot of talk about road tripping to this one. I didn't, and I'm gutted. So I've added this to the bucket list for next year. So I'm going to just go through this in order. Liam Jarrah played in the curtain raiser, um, and there was a beautiful photo on AFL.com on their Twitter that they shared of him and Max Gorn in Max Gorn's debut game. Gorny without a beard, weird. But um, they put that photo there and then a photo of them together in Alice. So there were some quite nice um, elements because obviously the Demons have such a strong um, history up in that part of the world. Melbourne played their song, I believe, in Woiwurrung, which is the language of the Wurundjeri people in Melbourne, um, when they came out. The Eagles banner was written in Arunda, which is the local people in Alice Springs. Um, and then he, the West Coast Eagles had this contingent of Indigenous players. So they had Frankie Watson on debut who came in for Shannon Hearn slash Andrew Guff slash the Widow's Peak, whatever you want to call him. Um, they had Willie, Liam, Jets and Jared Cameron as well. So they had almost a quarter of their 22 um, was Indigenous in a game in Alice Springs, which was huge. They stayed out for so long post-game. Um, pre-game ceremonies were amazing. The backdrop up there is a photographer's dream. And you could see seven, every camera angle they could. The camera, it's probably the only opportunity in footy the seven cameramen get to be a little bit artistic and every opportunity you could just see they absolutely nailed the camera shots um going back to the representation thing there was a stat that came out from swamp the other day 
And then in 18 and 19, we've had 100% of games have featured at least one Indigenous Indigenous player. So it was pretty common from 2010 to 2017. Like So 99.3% of games in those years featured an Indigenous player. But the gradual rise in representation, at least in the playing cohort, has been fairly profound. And I thought that was reflected on the weekend by West Coast. Um, whether that representation starts to cross over into umpiring and to board level at the AFL and in other spheres of the game remains to be seen. Well, even probably most importantly at the moment, coaching. Because if it's, if the playing cohort's growing, then the next obvious support network for those players at the very least would be assistant coaches and support staff that they deal with on a day-to-day basis. Because so. mm. yeah. it seems at the moment that the clubs obviously have their liaison officers specific to Indigenous players and like Richmond have the cultural awareness team and whatever. But it, it seems like their support often comes from each other. And mm. so the ones that have been through the transition tend to help the next generation, which is kind of what's happened at Richmond and at West Coast. Yeah, And whether that changes a little bit with the advent of assistant coaches, et cetera, will be really interesting to see over the next four yeah. or five years. And I know something that's high on Tanya, Tanya Hosh's agenda at the AFL um, is an Indigenous AFLPA as well. So I yeah. think that'll be, if that can get off the ground, I think yeah. that'll be huge as well for those players. Yeah, and I was reading some stuff today in relation to the Adam Goods doco, which we'll talk about later, and mm. Charlie King from ABC Darwin wrote something, and I can't remember the guy's name, but there's only been one Indigenous AFL slash VFL umpire. So they're hugely underrepresented in that space as well. Mm, yeah. Um, so how that all plays out, it will remains to be seen. I don't think we've ever had an Indigenous senior coach either. No. Off the top of my head. Much no. like we spoke earlier in the year about um, Indigenous captains and their representation as captains when Shane Edwards took the mm. Richmond captaincy and how rare that's been. Now, my second hot pie, and you're going to have to indulge me here, was... Uh, well, you're indulging yourself by having two hot pies there. I... I, look, if you're going to have one, you may as well have two. You've already <laughs> eaten a lot of calories. You may as well just blow it out completely. Um, Richmond are obviously uh, back in business, but um, the uh, the Emperor's got a bit of a new groove. And the Emperor is Tom Lynch. And he is now the Emperor of Richmond's ridiculous forward line, which is so fun to watch. How is he the Emperor? Because that kind of suggests hostile takeovers. He's I don't know come, if it's been a hostile come, takeover. He's come down from the North Circa Game of Thrones style taken over the crown and the throne or whatever the thing is. I've never actually seen Game of Thrones. I don't think there's my anyone Nadia, called Emperor in Game of Thrones yeah, either. My, so you're my off Nadia ran off there, but yeah. Explain to me how he becomes the Emperor. Surely no. Jackie Rewalt is the Emperor. It was more the new groove okay. that I was kind of going for so much. The Emperor not so bothered. Although, he, I mean, if you judge the Emperor by who's kicked more goals, then he's the Emperor of Richmond at the moment. But they've got Lynch, Rewalt, Dusty started forward on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, those three, the thought of Dusty potentially taking a third defender is a little bit scary. Um, and then you also have... Uh, Stack, uh, Georgie Costanza, who's been in career best, and then Rioli as your starting six, um, which is pretty um, – that's pretty juicy, I reckon. Something to be watching. And obviously that's been helped by Shy Bolton moving into the midfield and getting possessions for fun. Um, so that's released Dusty to go forward a little bit more. So they almost always now have Prestia as their sort of always their centre bounce player. And then Dusty and Koch have kind of been rolling forward more so than even in previous years. And just like the lineups and the matchups for opposition defences with, you know, always those three talls and potentially Chol there rotating as well is something to behold. And it doesn't seem to have impacted pressure at ground level too much so far on what I've seen. No, I think you'll find with the clearance stats that most of that's a crapshoot. So coaches are seeking advantages at either end of the ground, stocking up either the defenders and attackers, and saying, well, it's pretty much like a 50-50 thing with football ups now and for all midfield stoppages. So let's get the advantage once the ball goes forward because if it does, 
Like we can just accidentally make that happen. Let's mm. make sure when it does happen, mm. we capitalize on it. Yeah, and if anything, and I know Hardwick said this in his presser, they had like 900 meters gained from forward handballs or something, which is like the league average is 140 was the Nick Del Santo stat. So there was a few times where I thought they could have gone long earlier um, and actually just tried to let those blokes jump and fly. They were a little bit too hesitant for my liking. And um, we did get a lot of uh, kick the bloody thing at the MCG on, on Saturday, which is amusing because for once I thought it was actually fair enough and normally I'm the bloke sitting there going, no, handball's good, it's not a fad, don't don't tell them not to. Very exciting. Of course, special mention to my boy Toby Nankervis coming back in the Scooby-Doos, uh, ready to obviously tear the world to shreds on Friday night, but probably not because I'm. Uh, it's all perfectly poised for Mason Cox to, to ruin my life. Do you again. think that Nank gets back in? Because I know that Nank has a special... Nank is like your son, but... Shoulders, is your Lord and Saviour. So I'm, I'm conflicted here. So which one of the Holy Trinity comes in? Well, there? I don't think. I think it'll be. I think Chol will stay. Yeah. And I think it'll either be Nank or Soldo, because I don't think they'll go with Soldo and Nank. Because I don't think not going to carry three ruckmen. No. no and they, but if they went Soldo Nank, they drop Chol, which I don't think they'll do. So I think they'll carry Chol, and I feel like there's a reasonable chance the way that Soldo's gone, they'll err on the side of caution. They may even try and get Shoal to take Grundy around the ground because he's pr- probably a bit more mobile and get Salto to take bounces. It'd be interesting to see what they do. I'm not sure Nank, five-day break, played a half in the VFL. Is that enough to no. then go toe-to-toe with Grundy? I don't think so. So I would be, if I was Damien Hardwick, which is a big call, there's a lot of things that would have to be different in my life for that to be the case, I'd just stick with Salto because I think he has done fairly well in this stint. Absolutely. He's, he's been really, really serviceable. And I think he's that. He's been better than Nank. <laughs> it's been said. I'm not sure. He has been. Look it up. Look at, look at, use your eyes, JP. Say, say kind bedtime lullabies to your son, the Nankinator, and say, well done, Nank. You did well. But sometimes in footy, someone's better than you. But the, <laughs> the clearances, well, Richmond's clearance stats have improved with Soldo because he's better at the, he's not as good around the ground, but he's better at the bounce. But then if you're using Chol around the ground and you've got Lynch and you've got Rewalt, you don't need the marking power and the around the ground mobility as much. So maybe I've just solved my own problem. Last one on Richmond, because you're going full Nuffy stage here. This can be a little like cheeky party pie on the side. Obviously footage today came out of Alex Rance running. I know, like how amazing an athlete running. How many group chats do you reckon I shared that in? But how did you feel <laughs> at when least, you saw that? At least six. How did you feel? As a Richmond fan, as a Richmond Nuff Nuff, what 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 was your initial feeling when you saw the tweet, when you opened the link, when you saw the gif? You know the emoji just with the two hearts as eyes? Yeah. That was me. No, just warm. Also, what did you make of a... I felt warm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I felt warm and I felt hopeful. That's beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. Yeah. Mm. You know what? Because I just think it's... Richmond couldn't be in a better position than what they're in, given what they've had. Yeah, okay. Like, that's, a, that's a very poor And so if, sure. it's not a great, it's not one of my finest, no. sorry. But if, if they were able to, like, could you imagine the emotional, not the emotional impact, but if you're an opposition team yeah. and they finish fourth or fifth and they, you know, so you're playing a top four team in a semi or a qualifying final and they've mm-hmm. kind of not been that great all year, find form at the right time and then roll rants out. Like, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure anyone would want to play us. No, you're not playing Rance anyway, though. He hasn't played for 23 weeks. They did it with Goldsack last year. Yeah, how'd that go? 
not bad. He played pretty well in his mm-hmm. West Coast the yeah, first week. Did. Yeah, sort of. But like, he's also, <laughs> I mean, Goldsack and Rance is orange yeah. and apple. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Remains to be seen. It. I don't. My personal like opinion is that Richmond are just like they're just dictating really. Like they're not actually going to play him. I don't think because I think it would be too big a risk off bat. And I guess it would depend on do they think their backline's still frail. And I think that I'm probably not the person to answer that question. There you go. And we might find out on Friday because if Mason Cox ruins my life, then I'll want Rance desperately for whatever's to come. 7-11 for the year. So accuracy hasn't always been his thing, but that is the bow and arrow comes out. So my cold pie going into the pies that haven't been cooked properly in our oven has been the response to Dersma's bow and arrow celebration. So I think this drew out I'm not so much interested in um, what you actually thought of the celebration, but there seems to be this prevailing attitude when things like this happen that players should only be seen to have fun or enjoy themselves or, you know, shoot a bow and arrow and, you know, maim someone in row 17 with an imaginary arrow if they're winning. And white. And white. So, yes, thank you for that. But it just seemed to me like, and this came up earlier in the year when Dyson Heppel had the moment where he smiled after the final siren. Mm. How dare he? In, in the Dane Rampey game. Like, can players only show personality when they're winning? And, like, and it's why? Not when, it's not even when you're winning. Because at the moment in the AFL environment, it's when you're winning at a specific moment. So it has to be, like, it has to be like tight and you have to, like, kick the winning goal and then you can do whatever you want. But, like, if you're up by, like, 60 and you're, like, celebrating, like, it's, Adelaide then where it's, against then the it's Suns, showboating. then it's showboating or arrogance. Or if you're doing it when you're down by, like, more than three goals, like, on the weekend, then it shows that you have no care for, like, the, for the game. It makes no sense. And... The way I think about it is this is like what Dersman's like first year player, so he's like 19. Maybe. But it's like he's been doing this all year. He's been shooting the arrow because it's like it's a very common uh, celebration in American football, especially. But now it's seen across in some other like European football leagues. All sorts of players, people score a goal or score a touchdown and they fucking go bang and it's all great. Except here, apparently. Well, because Ken Hinckley's comment was uh, there's a time and a place in footy. Yeah, the time yeah. would be after a goal. And the place would well, be on the MCG point. in front of 60,000 But even, even Hinkley's kind of gone in this presser and he's kind of skirted around like, we want them to be individuals, we want them to be personalities. Mm. Yeah. But then... Just not too individual and not too much personality. So it's like, where's... So like, how do we draw mm. the line? And this is where like... Just a little pistol finger. So, so something like Stack with his war dance <laughs> pre-game mm. was widely lauded pre-game. But only because it was in, during Indigenous Round. If he had done a, if he had done a war dance and it wasn't Indigenous round, I don't think it would have been as lauded. Well, Adam Goods did a war dance in Indigenous round, but yeah. we'll get to that later. But yeah, it just I just don't like the idea that players can only enjoy the contest when they're winning. Yeah, like you only celebrate. No, and like if you, actually, if you actually stop to think about it, Dersner is a 19 year old kid playing AFL footy professionally, full time, on the MCG in front of 60,000 people. I would be doing all sorts of celebrations if I ever kicked a goal in the MCG in any AFL game. If in a VFL game. I do it when I play local sport. It's just like, it's fun. Sport is fun. Kicking a goal is fun. And you should be allowed to have like three seconds of like just 
me time yeah. when you do something cool. Because it's also like the idea that the celebration made it all about him is just not true. He shot the arrow and then went and celebrated with his teammates. Like It's not like he ran and just avoided them all. I think like, no, don't yeah. high-five me. This is all about me. That's such a misconception like, when they say that celebrations is like me time and all about yeah. the personal achievement. But it's not. I think it does more than that. It brings the team in and it brings the crowd in. Like The celebration is for the crowd. It's, yeah. the, it's the show so of it. So that was part of the... Uh, fight back as well was because, you know, it's a Richmond home game, so you upset the Richmond fans <laughs> and then, like, you know, the 19th player was offside and then everyone started booing him, oh, which, gosh. you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, cool. And I think he would have <laughs> known that would have happened. Yeah. But, like, so yeah, some of the Twitter audio was saying it, they're like, oh, no, Richmond lifted again after the celebration. It's like, no, they were already three goals up. They had already <laughs> lifted. They were clearly they always were, going to win the game. They were already ta- they've already taken off. The spaceship has already left. Like, he's just orbiting this Richmond There was that. Moment. And then there was the other one that was, oh, Richmond just don't do that. They always, the first thing they do is go and celebrate with each other. And I'm just like, I've just, this is not the, the place to compare the two teams. Like, this is not a show of whether Port are a closer-knit team than Richmond yeah. based on this one thing. Yeah. Because Sydney Stack and Daniel Rioli went and celebrated together. Like, does that mean that it's all about that those two and not the other 20? Like, you can pretty much spin it anyway. And it's also horses mm-hmm. for courses because Dusty loves, like, going to the going to the crowd. He does. And getting some me time. He doesn't shoot a bow and some, arrow. Some Dusty Bonds underwear me time. So does Jack. <laughs> yeah. Jack does the big finger point yeah. every time he kicks a goal. Mm. Like... I just, it's just, but I think it's also like earn your stripes a little bit in the AFL. Like it's a very traditional, like super restrictive, masculine, norm core sports environment. It's like you can't, you can have, to, you can only be a personality if you've earned it. You only earn it by winning a premiership or winning a Brownlow or whatever. Like you can't just be this little tacker coming on the scene and being like, look at me, look at me. That's what it looks like to like all. And then the people who say it are like ex players. Your John O'Browns and your Nick Dustin has been like, well, in my day, we would have been talking about there behind the scenes and saying, boy, you can't be pointing fingers down when we're three goals down, not in my team, mate. That was very good. It's just, was just an amalgamation of all of them <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, and even like something like um, the Jack Higgins thing last year where he cracked a joke, um, get well soon, Snacks, cracked a joke in the Richmond huddle and everyone was laughing. Oh, And it, and it was, oh, my God, how nice is it that they're showing this relaxed attitude and they're mm. enjoying their footy? If they'd done that and they were behind, yeah. how different would the response have been? So yeah. from the dominant team that's number one in the comp, we ex- we it's accepted. But then if you went to Carlton and saw them doing that with a team of young blokes finding their way who know where they're at mm. and are trying to take a journey, it just it just isn't – it's horses for courses and it doesn't all add up and not everyone's viewed equally. And mm. it's very annoying. It is very annoying. Welcome to society. <laughs> now, what's this? I'll pick up the back page of the age. You've gone and done your briefing yesterday, and what's come out of it is you want to get rid of tackling. Yeah, they've run with tackling. AFL wants to cut back on tackling. We've got lots to get through, but I'm not sure that was the number one priority for you. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, just a balance in tackling. That's uh, It's certainly a really important part of the game, definitely. We want that. We want it to be a contested game, but... Um, 160-plus tackles in a game. I'm not sure that's what the fans want. We want some space. The people's question this week is about whether there is, in the AFL, an optimum pressure skill balance. So I was thinking when I devised this, a little bit about the balance between bat and ball in cricket, which was perfectly on show in the World Cup final, where we kind of had a nice pitch that gave us 240, 250 as a par score, and it showed all of those sort of skills and facets of the game. So my question is, in AFL... Is there a sort of a sweet spot where we have the pressure that brings out and brings to the fore well-skilled good players? And is there a point where we have too much of like too much pressure, so no, there's no skill, 
and then no pressure, so there's too much skill. Is, so is there a sliding this scale? This is a very interesting question, JB. And I was was I was ruminating on this uh, this afternoon, and we obviously had this kind of mental connection because uh, the, the the analogy with cricket and the dichotomies of other sports is a very pertinent one, which you've just brought up. So well, well, and it's the same in like the the pitcher and the bat and the pitch. It's in the baseball. same in tennis. It's the same in ba- uh, baseball. It's the same in basketball. It's the same in American football. Basically, every sport in the world except for AFL has a dichotomy of attack and defense. So it, one, one entity is on the attack, the other is on the defense. Usually, they're separated by either an actual divider, like a net in tennis, or rules that prevent you from crossing over divides or offside in most sports. Mm. AFL doesn't have that. So in, say, rugby union, for instance, which is what the AFL wants to avoid. They always go, like, we don't want these rugby scrums. You can only enter a scrum from the front or the back. You can't enter from the side. You can't enter on top. There's no, there's no actual, like, rolling mall, even though they call it a mall in rugby. What you get in AFL is there, there are no rules. There are no dividers. There is no, Correct. like, point of distinction when a team is on the attack, on defence. They either have possession or they don't. And even then, the most, most of the time, AFL phase is actually... In contest, like it's it's well, unknown. Well, AFL is unusual because it has three possession. phases, isn't it? Well, you possess, I possess, and or it's, it's in and context. It's in context, yeah. And there's not a lot of sp- even hockey, which is the other equivalent 360 game, yeah. doesn't have the same emphasis on contest. No, and so it's even much things, more like yeah, soccer in the matter like of soccer, possession. Yes. So I and like soccer, basketball is the number one example where there's no rules saying like where the divider is. But in basketball, you have an attacking phase. Basically, most of the time, you have a shot. The ball goes in. The ball goes out. And then I get a turn to run down the court and have a shot. And we repeat that for four quarters. That doesn't happen in AFL. And so what, what happens is there is a huge possibility that no phase ends up happening. So it happens and it sits in between attack and defense for long periods of time. Mm. And that's when people get confused because you'll take an international person or a person that doesn't follow AFL and they'll go, oh, what, what's happening? And you'll be like, oh, it's stuff like it's not like yeah i can take you to a rugby league game a rugby union game you know who has possession at any one time and that's why this is a like existential crisis for afl when they say we want to expand into asia we want to expand into america because no one knows how it works unless you're a native afl watcher yeah it's really interesting rick charlesworth was for anyone who doesn't know very well known and very successful hockey ruse and Kookaburra's coach, who also mm-hmm. played cricket for WA, had this really basic, the most basic conception of how you play hockey. Mm. And his three, he had basically said the game is about you get the ball, you keep the ball, and then you penetrate. And that's your three steps mm. in hockey. Now, that's even more pertinent in AFL because there's get, get the ball, contest, keep the ball, and then penetrate. But in, in hockey, the get the ball, basically his conception was that defense is always inherently offensive because you're always trying to get the ball back hmm. at some point. Where, the, where that point is, that, is that undefined. Is, that is basically the evolution of modern-day AFL because what olden-day AFL was in this very spacious environment where everyone was playing their positions is a bunch of random 50-50 contests that determined the next phase of play. When you become a professional environment, since we have been in the, since the year 2000 onwards, coaches go, how do I take out the randomness? How do I gain control of the situation? You limit the 50-50 contests. How do I do that? The easiest way is to bring a number, give myself the advantage. So where do you win the ball? At the source, at the contest. How do I get the advantage? I add another person. So what do you do to counteract that? You add another person. Well, I add another person. Oh, I add another person. And we'll keep on adding people because we know that if I add one, you have to add one, so there's no disadvantage on either end of the field. So when it turns into an attack, I'll just still 50-50 once I get out there. Mm. So that's why we get these like massive numbers of people around the ball, and that's why we move to 6-6-6. 
It is, but I also find that interesting in itself because eventually a plus one, if there's so an eleven on ten is not as as not is not as advantageous as a two v one. No. So eventually you end up nullifying the advantage by also, throwing men at the source. Which is why also why then you eventually stick one out the back or stick one forward or whatever and you and you tweak the lead. Try and pull people away yeah. from, from the congestion. I think inherently though, you said about trying to control what phase it's in, we have seen more and more keepings off played, mm. particularly in the early part of this year, which is a very, very split. It's almost like European soccer went through the era where Barcelona were winning everything and possession was nine-tenths of the law, which it's now gone away from. It's mm. gone back to being penetration is nine-tenths of the law. And I don't know whether that ever shifted in Aussie rules because if you look at um, – and we basically went through today, Gordo, and we pulled out the year-on-year -year game averages for all the key stats. So how yep. many kicks, handballs, tackles you get in a game. One of the ones that really stood out – in terms of the state of this year's football, is actually the efficiency of the delivery of the ball inside 50. So scores per inside 50 is at an all-time low mm -hmm. this year, which is essentially teams might be keeping the ball more, but their ability to penetrate with it has never been worse. And it's funny because when you look at teams that are struggling, Collingwood, their fir the first problem they cite is their delivery inside 50. Mm. They, win the inside, they won the inside 50 count and got beaten by 40 points on the weekend. Melbourne have been, in, been citing that one since round one. So that is almost, I think the Bulldogs at various stages mm. have been screaming about that. It's almost the first thing, if it's broken, that's where the coach immediately goes. And also, if you look back at the nostalgia lens, so Hawking's era of football now, he's a person that's in charge of like, like moulding what AFL should be. All of our commentators come from that era. So if you go back to 2000, the very first year of the AFL, 60% goal efficiency, so kicking accuracy was 60%. Inside 50 uh, was 45 so basically every one in two times you went inside 50, you scored a goal or you yeah. had a shot at goal. And then over half those times you kicked a goal. So the frustration you get now is that everyone's, you go inside 50 just as many times. So 111 times on average in 2000, 104 times on average in this, this season. Mm. So the drop-off's not, not significant. But what is significant is there's not a huge chance that it will result in a goal because the efficiency's dropped away to 38%. And the goal accuracy has dropped down to 57%. But the goal accuracy is probably explained by fatigue. Yeah, now we have I a shot clock. I would say, yeah, and we now have a shot clock. But that drop-off of like 3% isn't, isn't astronomical, so it's far more on the score. But, once you, but once, you, once you add them together, though, once you drop down the efficiency of actually getting a score and then take another 3% off whether that's a goal or not, that's where you, get, that's where you lose 15 points a game, 20 points a game per mm, team. Absolutely. The other one that stood out, and we started this by mentioning tackles, and the tackle statistics from 2000 are like so interesting to chart because we're actually at a 10-year low this year. Mm. But what's really – so from 2000, you basically went – I'm going to read this out. You basically went gradually inclined. So 2000, you had 64 tackles per game. This is for both teams. 01 was 71, 02, 86, 03, the same. 2004 was 90, 2005, 88. Spike, so 2006, we went up to 98. Spike again in 07 to 106, 107 in 2008, and then we went from 107 to 124 in 2009. Since then, we basically then bell curved or mountained. So we peaked and we had our peak number of tackles per year in 2016, which was 140. And we've actually dropped now this year back to 2009 levels. So we're only getting 125 tackles per game. So we've come down the other side of the mountain in terms. So 
kind of looking at that and equating that with Stephen Hawking's comments, how does that add up? So it had a lot to do with game style. And I suppose, again, so if you went if you went back before the AFL existed, when it was called the VFL for UJB, the game style was the same. Like, it was just 50-50 random, 50-50 contests around the field. And then since the advent and professionalism of the league, we have more game styles. So Brisbane's game style was very... They very much just went forward. Like Lee Matthews is a massive advocate of just win the ball, go forward, kick goals. That's that's how he did them. Yep. The first real change was when Geelong went and started handballing. So that Geelong three and five era, yep. there's lots of handballs. And so how do you combat that? If they're handballing a lot, the ball's live, so you can tackle them. So then you'll tackle lots. So everyone started tackling. Yeah. Then it became that, that add one to the, to the contest, add one to the contest. So you get those dour West Coast Sydney grand finals where everyone was just, you, you were having like 14, 15 each at the contest and then just leave your, your key forwards at the back. And so that's, 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 that's the evolution. So once you lose the advantage of having more at the contest, you go, what's the next thing? Well, then where's the ball? So then you have the Doggies and Richmond winning grand finals based off having the ball in there forward 50 more often than not. Mm. And then how do you counteract that? You do what West Coast does. We're going we're gonna to win the ball or let you give it to us and then not give it back to you. Mm. And now we have our European football style, which is low scoring and sometimes quite dull because you don't want to create those 50-50 contests. You're going to wait till you hit the target. But that's just evolution of game style. And that's we've been saying that footy's dead and dying the whole time. Since the start of the AFL, we've been having the same conversation that footy is effed. So I'm going to throw this one to Casey. You love it when your team wins the grand final. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all that matters, really? Because, like, how many fans – so the, the changes that I see are there's a higher imperative than ever for coaches to win because if you don't win, you don't have a job. And then B is because they will do things that aren't pretty or traditional and we have access to every game now – you will witness games that aren't exactly pretty to watch. You'll witness Sydney versus Fremantle on Saturday night. <laughs> 51 versus 52. What a game. But will you take all of that if your team wins a grand final? Is, that, is it still the most important thing is to win or do, do coaches as custodians of the game have a responsibility to play pretty football? Well, you know what my answer is going to be on this because, of course, a grand final is – I'm going to take it. Like, And, and it's interesting you bring up the, the 05 and 06 grand finals because I think that was like – you know, that was Andrew Dimitri coming out and like actively like, you know, going at West Coast for playing ugly football. Um, but it won us a premiership, you know, not in 05, just in 06. We won't think about 05. Um, but like I'm not going to go back and like demand a prettier game and a more exciting game and lose a premiership. As well, can a you get any more exciting than Leo Barry, you star? <laughs> oh, like... my God. <laughs> but I think the bottom line is no matter what game style your team, like St Kilda fans wouldn't have really been complaining about Ross Lyon, who was widely criticised in much the same manner, if they'd pulled off the flag, which they were within one bounce. He from. also had mm. the highest scoring team that year. Often forgotten. Mm. Yes. So he's not always Dara Roscoe, only when his list is crap. Yes, which is completely understandable. So another one for you, Case. So we kind of started by talking about how tackling is viewed and whether we view it as a skill. So Steve Hawking saying that we shouldn't. Mm. But when you go to the footy as a fan, do you not thrive on tackles and collisions? 
Oh, 100%. And I mean, I don't care if people disagree with me on this, but tackling is like one of my favourite parts of the game. When you see someone getting chased down and tackled and you yell out ball and the, like, the, as loud as you can at the MCG, that is one of the most like fun experiences and most rewarding experiences, I think, as a fan because you can see the chase. You can see how hard that is to actually force that to happen. And I think it's so exciting. So, And I view that as a real skill of the players because I think it is something that's quite unique to our game and I love it for it. Would you be happy with more holding the balls if we if we reduce the amount of time that is required for prior opportunity because that's kind of in my opinion the easiest way to get rid of congestion is to give the ball to someone like mm. end that contested phase and give it to someone so they have to they can now kick it hot potato footy yeah um, mm. I don't know I just like it how it is I think <laughs> it's been the, the team prior opportunity has been floated before yeah where it, like if you ham if you throw a hospital handball and your teammate gets carded you should get punished. Well, I suppose, okay, so as a, as a small round table, do we have a consensus that there is a problem with how the game looks? I don't personally know. No. Like I'm not really bothered about, okay, we went for 666. I think the thing with the rule changes, and I know Jake Nile wrote this in his opinion piece. It's like we did rule, we basically wrote or came up with rule changes that didn't piss everyone off that much, but then as a consequence didn't solve the so-called problem. So like I would rather the AFL just leave it. As it is, because again, it will naturally evolve again. It will naturally evolve, and well, someone no, there is the, so if if Hocking and Gill want it to be like VFL days and everyone plays in their position, then have six 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 the whole time. But they're all professional now. I know, <laughs> and that's the difference. It's like they would have if they could have in the seventies have have their halfbacks push up to the forward fifty arc. They would have, but they couldn't physically do it, and now they can, and. In my opinion, anyone that says that 1950s footy is better than 2019 footy doesn't have eyes. Like, they are not watching footy. Mm. Like, they are faster, stronger, mm. better. The only thing they don't do is kick more accurately at goal, and now they have to, have to do it with the shot clock. If you had made plug a locket, try and kick that ball within 30 seconds, he's missing more often than not as well because he would be absolutely gassed. The same with Dunstall. The same with all these guys that sit back on their on their couches yeah. on Fox TV <laughs> and say, oh, back in my day I used to kick that set shot real straight. Yeah, yeah. because you had about three minutes to catch your breath and, and kick it. And they wouldn't be taking, like what they were doing back in those days wouldn't be classified as a Marxist today anyway. So yeah. they wouldn't even be getting the ball delivered. So question for you, uh, Gordo, because you've worked as a stats man uh, at various organisations. Can you be a good tackler? You mean, like, yeah. This definitely. is my saying. So tackling is a skill in the sense that some are not that good at it and some are pretty good at it. Well, right now, champion data ta- uh, tracks tackle efficiency. Yeah. Like, so it is a, sk- like, it is a skill. It, it's very... You don't even need a statistician to do that. What are the four fundamental skills you learn in kid? Handball, kick, kick mark, you, tackle. Handball, yes. Marking, they are the four <laughs> fundamental skills of footy. Yeah. You can yeah. get rid of the ball in two ways. You can get it in two ways. That's footy. So final two questions. Yes, when we mate. talk about Steve Hocking going, okay, I just want to reduce tackling, is that not just a new way of talking about an old problem? Like the problem is still congestion. The problem is not his congestion. Okay. So if we want to put our little tin hats on, the problem is scoring. And the CEO of Seven Network has come out in the last five years and said that the most important thing to the Channel 7 Network is the 30 seconds directly after a goal. That's where they make all their money. They will pour as much money into the AFL as long as they make it back on ads. 
Fox Fox Footy and the Foxtel and Fox Sports want there to be more scoring because then Channel 7 has more ads because then I watch them have more ads then I get sick of the ads and I buy a Fox Footy subscription. Higher scoring is higher ads and it makes both those organisations profit. They, they, they fund the AFL to 70% of their revenue so whatever makes them happy makes the AFL happy. That is it. That is the baseline. There is literally nothing wrong with this game until the AFL comes out, stabs itself on the back, feeds all these story to journalists, gets them writing about it in the paper, feeds it back to us. We read our so-called experts say that the game is broken because they're told to, because they're, they're, their salaries are paid by the people that pay the AFL, that feeds the whole machine. And then you get this. Like, it, there's nothing wrong with the game. We just we went through eight different phases of footy that have existed in the professional sense. You can go back and read Time and Space, um, which is a, an okay book about tactics in the AFL history, and it's been changing and it evolves and it circles and, it, it you know, what works doesn't work and then you work out something else. Mm. At the end of the day, so long as they're kicking, marking, handballing and tackling... It's footy. It's footy. So final question for both of you. I'm going to start with you on this one, Casey. Could Steve Hocking say anything without outcry? Like, to me... This comment was jumped on. I don't know if it was new news, so to speak, but the fact that the I, it, I think the reaction to this was immediately a sign of how out of joint people are or how far people's noses are out of joint with the AFL. I'm going to also put my tin hat on because I quite agree with what Gordon just said and I also think that this is his job to do this. I think he purposefully does this because I think when... The media is all busy talking about this. The AFL are doing other things. And I think that's what we need to... That's what I would be interested to see what happened in the next couple of weeks because while we're all busy talking about this aspect of the game, in my mind, it's probably not going to change. But we're going to get fed something else later that's going to be like a lesser change. And we're going to think, oh, actually, thank God they're not going to do all this other thing that they got us so upset about, but this is okay. So I think it's very strategic and I think that's his job and I think that they run that part of the business very well. But that's tin hat Casey speaking. We can go even more tin hat and go, well, what happened last Thursday night? A documentary came out about Adam Goods and then suddenly we have interviews with Steve Hawking saying, oh, I'm going to get rid of I don't like tackling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can go from like a governance issue that's kind of the AFL's actual job to a rules issue that's not really an issue, that they have a rules like body that usually come together, which I just did last year, and they recognised that, oh, these are the things we're going to do to try and solve the problem. And then when you crunch the numbers, we are tackling at the lowest rate in a decade. Yeah. Mm. So if you want to put your double tin hat on, I think you get to something like that as well. Giving me the tin hats to layer them up, yeah. I'm so suspicious of this kind of stuff all the time. I think, yeah, it's very strategic. There's always something else happening, and I would just urge people not to get caught up in the media storm of these things and just think about what else is happening at the same time. Yeah, look, he's an unbelievable player. He's got two brown lows. He's got three best and first, four All-Australians, one of the all-time great players. The AFL fans and officials have expressed shock and disappointment. I've never seen a country so divided about a sporting subject like this. What he's doing is cutting through. He's forcing our nation to talk. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about. It's definitely not a comfortable thing to go through. I decided to stand up, and I'll continue to stand up. 
Straight into our book club for this week, which is the Adam Goods doco, which was aired on Channel 10 on Thursday night. It's called The Final Quarter. Uh, it is directed by Ian Darling. It is an absolute must-watch for anyone interested in football or just interested in where Australia is going and has been as a nation. So um, I'm going to start with a really simple opening one here. Casey, we watched this together on Thursday night. What was your initial reaction to the documentary? Uh, just, I mean, I'm echoing what a lot of people have already said, but it's just like a real profound sadness, really, that it happened. Um, it's hard watching, and it's hard watching it from a point of view of someone who, I mean, I'd like to think I was quite on the right side of history during that time, but, you know, I was probably someone who didn't stand up enough as well just in my own personal circles and in my own way. Um but I thought that I was always supportive of Adam and the Indigenous movement at the time, but still watching it and seeing the reaction. I mean, you still put yourself in those shoes and see how you responded to things. And yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking viewing and it's sad and it's really, it was really affecting and um, it was really, really difficult to watch. And you, Gordo? Much the same. I felt ill from about the period, part of the doco where uh, Goods gets awarded... Australian, Australian of the Year, year yeah. onwards was just like actual like nausea. Rehearing all the excuses and then rehearing like the full segments. For a lot of time when you like especially now in a in a very hyper Twitter, hyper shareable news era, you you'll hear like an outrageous sound, but you go back and listen to the whole bit and it's not as actually as outrageous as like what it's made out to be to get you to click. This was the reverse. So when you go back and hear some of the the so-called gaffes and slips of the tongues that were said, and you take the whole thing and get the context. It was actually worse. What, what com- yeah, columnists and com- um, commentators and presenters and radio hosts were saying in full context, in full state of mind, in full clarity, was horrific. And that's, that's not usually the case now. Usually you'll, you'll manipulate that. And going there, yeah, that, was, that was the most mind-blowing part. It was like, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't like write side of history that comment that was actually horrific at the time in its entirety. I was shocked by some of the things that I didn't realize were said because so I followed the conversation relatively closely at the time mm. but there's so much media around it that everything that everyone said is impossible to know. But when you package it all up and you just see how much of it there was, like and there were a few that there's the Eddie Maguire slip of the tongue that stood out, the Sam Newman stuff. Um, one that really stood out to me was the Dermot Brereton comments on um, the war cry belonging in another era. And I'm not naming the names to pot people, but I'm just... Well, they also just said it. Like, yeah, not, yeah. Not no, exactly. Said but I'm things. absolutely staggered that some of that stuff was said. Um, so you mentioned columnists already, and I read Andrew Bolt's column this morning. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously a, a feature of the documentary for obvious reasons, and basically still is running with the idea that there are two reasons that Goods was booed. Um, the first is this idea that he picked on a 13-year-old girl, mm-hmm. which when you view... And this is, I think, the, the staggering thing about this bit is how easy it was for people to not know. It's almost the reverse. So Goods' comments in full about the 13-year-old girl were completely the opposite of what they were made out to be. Mm-hmm. He said, she is not, um, she's not to blame here. This is not her fault. She needs our support. 
And essentially what he said was she is just a reflection of Australia as a whole and the Hmm. inherent racism that exists. So how Bolt has blown that out of proportion along with the rest is still beyond me. And the fact that he's still going with that argument, even after that evidence, is truly remarkable. Because also it's this is not a sports documentary. This is a documentary about race in Australia. It is. And no one that... I mean, we had, what, how many people in the room? Ten people in the room and four mm. of them have no interest in Australia. And the race. reason yeah. why the bulk can get away with something like that is because people won't have like won't listen to Goods' press conference because it's going to be on a sports channel. It's going to be him doing a press conference that they can clip up, that he can clip up, that he can take a pull quote from and put into his columns where he's syndicated nationwide. Like, that's why this became a thing because you have folks like him, folks like Alan Jones that have huge mm. listenerships and readerships and as much as Goods was Australian of the Year, he still gets reported on by reporters. And he is the prominent figure that gets held to account, and reporters are usually, well, nameless white men. And in this case, Bolt's a very well-known person, as is Alan Jones. But, like, reporters can go and have their say and, and pedal whatever they want to pedal, usually without any, you know, recompense, because you don't know who they are. You don't, you don't go yeah. and say, like... And I think you, got to, you had a mention here in the show, quote, uh, show notes about representation at certain newspapers... Well, I wouldn't know because I don't even know who half the writers are. Like, so it's hard to know who and why these reports are coming out. And then the second of what Bolt kind of argues is that if Goods is booed, why aren't all Indigenous players booed if it's racist? Um, and why has Goods not been booed for his whole career? And that, to me, is even more bleedingly obvious because mm-hmm. the booing started after he was named Australian of the Year, which is when he supposedly became supremely outspoken. Now, when you actually look at the essence of his comments, I think everything he said was incredibly considered. The interview he did when he was named Australian of the Year on Australia Day, he didn't even ask for the date to be changed. Yeah, He literally said, all you need to be mindful of is that some Indigenous people today are really going to be hurting. Yeah. We need to be aware of that. And we also need to have a conversation about what this day means to all people. Was, mm-hmm. I've paraphrased that, but that was the essence of it. Yeah. But then what was reported, again, was completely different. And I, so I find and even it, the clips here you saw with the talk shows when they go and take that big speech, they clip it up in a talk show and they get asked a question, oh, so what are your thoughts on Australia Day being Invasion Day? And so now they're, now they're hunting for the bit that makes it clickable. And that's that's the part kind of reflects modern day journalism is that they they go oh you having a really nuanced five minute conversation well if you're interested you'll click and if you're not then you won't we well, need to make it into something and that's what they did and they made it into something and that's something just something that was really horrific yeah and so I guess my next question on the agenda and you've mentioned representation already but what other issues did the media did this doco bring up about the media so just pick up on the representation thing because I listed this here. Um, we couldn't, I can't name an Indigenous journalist at the Herald Sun. I'm not saying that there isn't one. I just don't know them. The Age have just advertised for two identified Indigenous positions, but to the best of my knowledge, there isn't one. The Australian is exactly the same. The Guardian have a a, a few, and then the ABC have a number of identified positions because they're out in the regions. But in the, the mainstream, there is so little of representation. And then the second part of this is that when you're talking about an issue that's being based in sport, the panelists that are dealing with this live, so I'm thinking specifically after the war cry, that panel is perhaps the least qualified panel of people to be commenting on racial politics in Australia. But because it was played out in sport, if you could if it's possible, if the football media is even ma- more male and more white than the actual media. So as a as a as an industry, it's completely underprepared for this. 
There's no diversity whatsoever. Which, ironically, they even self-identified. That was Eddie's quote. He said, if we had been told about this, we could have prepared ourselves and perhaps we would have dealt with it better. But then you go into the Charlie Pickering quote from the weekly and he goes, well, yeah, who would have thought that an Indigenous player, an Indigenous round, who had kicked an Indigenous ball through an Indigenous goal, did an Indigenous dance to celebrate his, his Indigenous culture. Yeah, you need to warn me when shit's getting all Indigenous. Yeah. yeah. Which, Charlie Pickering in that docket, the satire was, it was almost hard to laugh. Like, because of just how stupid that seemed. I think we've known that football media and sports media has been very lacking of diversity for a long time. Um, and it's interesting you mention like, not being able to name journalists. Um, like, and this is an argument that I've been having with people for a long time because, like, these people are out there. It's just the... Um, the reluctance of outlets to find them or to put the effort into finding them. And I think this is something I brought up at your house when we were watching the documentary and it was um, something that I picked up from the Outer Sanctum podcast when um, they were talking about, you know, have that excuse of, oh, we can't find someone who who gives us a different voice. Like we can't find an Indigenous journalist. We can't find a woman to speak about um, this women's sport that they we need an expert in. So we just keep putting up the same people, which are usually white men. And it's the the line that comes from, um, you know, the Beyonce documentary or the um, from her Coachella show, well, not documentary, rockumentary. I don't know what you would call it. It's a concert with the behind the scenes. And Beyonce purposely found, you know, 50 black American women who could play in a marching band and dance at the same time. So these people are out there and there are people who can do these jobs and have these voices to add to the conversation, but we're so reluctant to find them and we put it in the too hard basket. And I think that was something that um, came up in the the after um, the project after special mm. that they aired after the documentary, yeah. um, which you know Mike Sheehan said that, you know, he'd never seen someone who was an Indigenous journalist being held back and Waleed Ali had to say, well, they don't get recruited to start with. And that's so true and it's so illuminating of that we think, oh, we, they don't get held back. It's like, well, you don't go put the effort in to find them. So, it's well, not even that. They don't get the effort to ask them either. Exactly. As we just saw like, yeah. with the Swamp Stat, like Indigenous representation as a player, like most of football media nowadays is ex-players with some lucky journalist to get some upstart. But A, that's like such a position of privilege for Sheen to be like, well, like, yeah, they didn't... He said, like, you have to go and get that job. That was his quote. Like, you have to go, like, go take that job. In journalism, yeah, like make everyone, your own way. Yeah, make, yeah, make your, your own, own way. way. It's like, mm. well, yeah, and that's really good to do if you have already have intel and especially back then when you could start as a paper copy boy and then work your way up. Mm. Well, yeah. you can't do that anymore, sure. A. Or like work but, for free because you have parents who can yeah, support exactly, you. Yeah, exactly, support you. Mm. But now it's like, well, the people that do get sought after are the ex-players. Well, if we have, you know, almost 20% Indigenous players playing in the AFL, why is there zero post-players as experts? Because that's that's all they kind of needed would, would be one person on that panel, which they did have in their defence with the Channel 7 when they had the first situation of the booing and, and the mentioning of the eight call. Yeah. We had uh, yeah, Indigenous players or past Indigenous players on the panel. Um, Mickey O'Loughlin was on there. Correct, yep, and he, he was. And, yep. then, and they threw to him and it's like, well, actually, I'm actually taking it back. I, this is how I'm responding. I can speak to this. I yeah. can speak to this. All they needed in that situation where Demi said that this was a war crimes from the bygone era was any Indigenous player, current or past, to say, well, actually, what it means is this. Yeah. And then they can go, oh. Mm. But even if you think about just the position of those men, I mean, obviously at that time, I mean, 
and even now you can still argue like that they they didn't have the foresight to do that whatever um yeah. i'm not excusing them for not having diversity whether it's indigenous people on panels or women on panels yeah. or anything um but just not having the awareness of like those men on that panel not having the awareness to say hang I on a second yeah. i don't know what's happening um we we might try and get someone on the line or we might try and, and hold this comment for another time so we can talk to someone who can talk to us more about what this is, what we're seeing. But they felt so entitled and so privileged to talk about it from their experience and just talk over any sort of fact or cultural understanding that they clearly did not have. And I think that's half the problem is that even when we don't have diversity media, which is a huge problem, we just still have people in there who just feel so entitled just to give their whole like their whole projection of these issues onto these issues, mm. um, which I think is was just so horrifying to see because you just saw people speculating and just sort of feeding this false narrative just with such full confidence. Mm. And we know how damaging mm. that is because, like you said, these are people who have built up a lot of respect over a, lot of per- a long period of time who can easily influence the minds of a lot of people and those narratives just continue to spread. And if anything, that, that, that exact snippet, post-war cry is the reason why sports journalists should exist is because like post like ex-players were players and now they're just commenting on what they kind of knew and they don't spend this they don't spend their spare time as a professional footballer looking back doing these having these conversations reading about things like an actual journalist that is a full-time journalist Correct. would have done the reading would have realized that oh this is indigenous round what what's their background what kind of where what tribes do they come from what's their kind of What's their traditional dance? Like the fact that it was an under like a dance that celebrated an under sixteen sixteen boomerang team is, is even more is like cadetship like great journalism. It's also special. read one link like yeah yeah. But that and that I I think just going back a step to your point about broader media diversity. Well, mm. I think the the construction of those panels being ex players is a problem in itself mm. because ex players are not in the same vein as journalists. But even if you look at how journalism has evolved. It's much, much, much harder to get into journalism now if you come from any underprivileged background, mm-hmm. which has has huge ramifications for Indigenous affairs reporting, for social affairs reporting, yeah. um, and for women's rights reporting, because the cost of a tertiary degree, you essentially have to have a degree. So you can argue that it's now as elite as any traditionally white male profession has mm. been. So it's even more expensive to do it than it's ever been. And without any payoff. And without- realistically, once you get there, people still think of it because it used to be a trade. Mm. You used to just go in there and learn on the job. Now you have to spend, basically get a master's degree. Or, th- or an undergrad degree. Yeah. But, but basically, no, like to differentiate yourself from the people that want to do yeah. it, get a master's degree, spend, what's that, seven years worth of education, then go there and pay a wa- get a wage that's actually not going to really could, recuperate those yeah. costs. And the other thing is that it relies heavily on unpaid internships, which you can't do if you come from an underprivileged background. Mm. A really good example of this, and I, we're not getting too far off topic, but Rick Morton, who works or was recently until recently social affairs reporter at The Australian, came from a hugely underprivileged background in rural far north Queensland, but got a scholarship to study journalism at Bond. Mm. And then as a result, got a cadetship at the Gold Coast Bulletin. So he is an incredibly rare breed. So that's a huge problem with where journalism is going just in all facets. But that manifests itself in Melbourne Journalism School, for example, where I studied has not a single Indigenous student in the school. Um, And how that would be reflected across other um, journalism schools in Melbourne would be really interesting because I suspect that that is where the essence of the problem is. That's what's feeding the workforce. And those students can't necessarily afford to 
cop the hex or to support themselves to do the unpaid internships. Racism! Racism! It stops with me. It stops with me. It stops with me. With me. With me. With me. Racism! It stops with me. Are you concerned that the experience of Adam Goods would silence or will silence other prominent Indigenous voices in the game? I put this in the context of um, the fact that Ken Wyatt, who's the Indigenous Affairs Minister, wants to try and have a referendum on the Uluru Statement mm-hmm. and constitutional recognition within the next three-year term of government. Assumedly, if that referendum were to happen, our sporting stars would be important advocates for that cause, which I think is a hugely important cause in the context of the nation. But I can't help but feel like in having seen that documentary, they would think twice. I think a lot of athletes would think twice and it's because um, we haven't solved what happened to Adam Goods. It's still a huge problem. Um, I don't think we've come out of this documentary or that time thinking that'll never happen again. We're all so sorry. We're all better people now and we've completely fixed and solved racism in Australia. If anything... um, I think that documentary pointed to how far we have to go considering, you know, what you mentioned Andrew Bolt wrote today. Um, We know there are still people who are very still of that mind of that time. So, I mean, if we'd come out of that time on the other end of it and it was dead and buried and we knew that it was never going to happen again, I'm sure we'd have a lot of athletes coming out talking about a lot of different things and which would be amazing. But I feel like that's got to be a harrowing thing to watch for someone who feels like if they come out and say something that's personal to them about their culture, about their beliefs, that they could go through a similar thing. That's got to weigh a huge amount on someone's mind for sure, which is devastating. So I kind of share the same issue here with like Waleed, like immediately, his opinion immediately post the documentary. Is Mm. that like, have we actually... Have any of us had a conversation with a person that wouldn't have already had the same view prior to the same documentary? He's written this again since, yeah. Yeah, because that's that's kind of the issue. The only one I've heard of who's had an attitude change was Mike Sheehan, who was caught up, Shelley Weir caught up with him and yeah. um, Catherine Murphy from the ABC mm-hmm. caught the tram with him to talk about the idea of yeah. the troubles that Indigenous journalists have making their way. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I, I haven't had a conversation with someone who wasn't already pro Goods, yeah. pro doco. Is it a case that, like, is the AFL whiter than other sports in Australia? I only say this because in uh, the most mm. recent monthly magazine, there's an article, Statement of Origin by Leach Blaine. I've read this, yeah. Yeah, which kind of th- uh, thrashes out the uh, national anthem protest that Indigenous players in the NRL and South of Origin were doing. And there hasn't been as much backlash about that. Yes, we're five years on, but also I think the NRL is a lot better and not only just incorporating Indigenous players and Indigenous culture, but actually celebrating the Indigenous players and Indigenous culture. And when, you know, this basically kicked off after Adam Goods became Australian of the Year and did a war cry, well, they've been doing their dances. Inglis. Inglis was in the doco. Yeah, doing a Goanna dance, which, again, the language they use, they could could have used instead of war cry, you know, gold dance or like whatever, because they didn't know what was going to be called anyway. They weren't prepared for it, apparently. So like, when we have Goanna dance, just the framing of that from a commentary point of view is so much more celebratory. It's fun. It's like he's, he's celebrating it's successful, how great it is to have successful Indigenous athletes. That's like it's such a positive statement there as a, compared to the opposite, which we had in the AFL. Mm. So is it like is the hopeful silver lining that actually this is 
a subsect. Like it's AFL community that has this issue, not all of Australia. Obviously, all of Australia has an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we're going to use sport as one of the, one of the platforms that we can we can use the pull the levers on, which is you know culture, sport, that kind of stuff, is it a sport issue or is it an AFL issue? I think it's hard to see a silver lining for hmm. me. And the reason I say that is a I think the, that question about whether the documentary is going to change attitudes is one thing. Um, and then the second question, and I kind of wondered this throughout, I think the conversation around Adam Goods got so much about whether the booing was racist and whether it was overtly racist that essentially what happened, the, the points that Goods was trying to make about systemic racism in Australia and how important that is, and that all came out of seeing the documentary Utopia, which talks about a lot of the systemic issues, incarceration, suicide, et cetera, faced by Indigenous Australians. I just wonder whether the conversation got a long way even away from those things. We got so caught up on whether the booing was racist that we weren't actually talking about the points that Adam Goods was making that are still issues that haven't been dealt with. I just with. don't think people were going to have those conversations anyway. I just subscribe to what Mark Robertson said in the documentary who ended up coming out sort of looking not too bad, um, which is interesting considering his propensity to um, slip up on these sort of harder issues. But he was saying to Jared Waitley in 360 during the time that, you know, the I think he called what do you call them the knuckleheads? I know knuckleheads. The knuckleheads out there. Oh, I know do, knuckleheads. They do not give a stuff about any of this. They don't give a stuff about if the racist the racism around the game is affecting Adam Goods. They don't care about racism as a whole. They don't care about if the booing is race, racially motivated. They just want to go to the footy and boo. And if you tell them that they can't boo, they're going to boo. Like they don't care. And I think we're still in a phase where. If someone doesn't want to engage with this conversation or doesn't want to think about it, they're not going to think about it. And I that's why I feel really broken about watching this film because I know how important it is and I know how far we need to come and I know how horrific all of this stuff is. But I also know that it's not going to change anyone's minds. So I disagree with just the end of that. It's not going to change the knucklehead's mind. That's not the job of this documentary. And I don't really think it's the job of these kind of like macro pieces of journalism. So I think no, uh, what, what you do, no, well, no, what the job of this is, is to keep the bastards honest. This is this is an attack at the AFL. Mm. So this is saying that you, at the time, had the opportunity to come out, mostly Gil, because by the time that he was in charge, and say, you need to stop, the fans of the AFL need to stop booing Adam Goods. And he didn't say that because he was like, I don't know what this is. It could be racism. It might not be. We're going to look into it. We're going to ignore it. It became a thing and they lost a legend. They need to come out now and say, A, we made a mistake, a huge mistake, and they need to do whatever they can to bring Adam Goods back into the game. But B, they need to make a commitment to say this will never happen again. We will see, like there is, and especially in a, in a season where they've already come out and said that we, like, no, like uh, crowd behaviour and safety at game is our number one priority when it comes to like at, at ground stuff. They need to come out and say, we've seen this, we've heard what the people, like we heard what you citizens of the people's game are saying, we need to change and we'll make sure that this never happens again. Well, they did do that, kind of. They didn't mm. say that. They didn't say that. We, they, they didn't come out and say it properly. And that's what they need to do. They were, that, the response to that. And then that flows down. When the AFL says that, then the knuckleheads don't have a choice because then it becomes unacceptable and everyone knows, like, that's the rule now. Like, and that's what, so it's, that's governance. So it's sporting governance. Mm. The government's come out and it had, like, they, once you have the apology, it starts something. It doesn't fix it, but it starts it and it sets the benchmark. But you need authoritative power to do that. And that's what the AFL didn't do the first time. I kind of wondered 
and I think I said this to you after the doco, and we spoke earlier about the Kyle Corver piece about allyship. Yeah. And I just think the AFL as an organisational body is one instance. But even from within, I don't know if anyone made this a just genuine mission to be an ally and wake up every day and engage with this and actually do something. Like there was... No, I think the players did. But I think okay. it goes back to Casey's point regularly. Is that it's not on the players. It shouldn't be on Adam Goods. It shouldn't be on one person. It shouldn't be on, like, the players make up such a small proportion mm. of the visible um, and audible part of the AFL. Like, the spokespersons are the CEOs, the commissioners, the games mm. commissioners, those kind of people. The players don't get a say because they're, they're muted by coaches and, and staff. And, like, there's mm. so many layers down. They're the people that we idolise because they, they are the game, but they aren't the spokespeople for the game. Mm. But I think what you need to remember, which I found this was the part of the documentary that got me the most, is when he took leave from the game. Mm. And that's when you see everyone starting to rally. So you see the banners coming out that we stand with goods. You, that's when you start to mm. see a lot of the player activism. You see clubs coming out, making emphatic stands, making videos that go to their members. You have that game where there's a standing ovation during the third quarter at the seventh minute for the 37. Like there is so much mm. activism then. And then he comes back and it's completely forgotten and it starts again. So I think this is where the conversation that I was having before that it's not going to change people's minds. And I know this is not the point of the documentary and I do believe um, the point of the documentary is that what you said just then, Gordo, but I think what we're getting caught up in now is the narrative of something like this changing people's minds because that's what I see all on social media now is like this people and like I'm talking about being in a bubble because I do surround mm. myself mm. with the people who share same the same views as me, who sh- share similar political views as me, and I do that on social media as well. So I'm sitting in a vacuum and all I can see is this documentary is so important. It's It'll change people's minds. It'll change everything. Like people need to see this. They need to see this to understand and we'll move forward. But the people who do need to see it are not going to see it because I think they're the same people who did put a number 37 on their arms when Adam Goods decided to take leave. And I think they're the same people who decided that just because they did that, that, oh, now I can boo him again when he comes back because I'm not part of the problem because they don't want to engage with it. And that goes back to that question of privilege, which we spoke about is because people who come from a white background or a privileged background, we can dip in and out of these things because we have the privilege to. And I think that's the whole issue about this piece, which still really grates me, is a lot of people still don't understand their privilege and their role in this conversation. Yep. And it goes to like the Jalen Rose, I suppose, mantra. is He goes, he's, he says openly in anything he does in life, he's like, I don't want you to bring flowers to my funeral if you don't bring me soup when I'm sick. And that's kind of like we have to get to the point where we bring people soup when they're sick. We shouldn't have to wait to make a documentary once we lose a person from the game. Correct. Mm. We Correct. should be preventing them from being lost in the first place. So final question for both of you. There's a petition going on change.org.au for Adam Goods to do a lap of honour at the grand final this year, which is something that he didn't do at the end of his career mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. How or what is your initial reaction to that? prospect because mine is utter terror yeah does he want to do it no I no no so it. i think this is this is totally hypothetical yeah. no no because I, I understand the petition i'd almost i'd you need because part of it will be like the afl or even just like the footy community saying sorry to goods but i think more of it has to be like what he wants like if he's going to be there in person 
It's more about what he wants. No, no, and then absolutely. If, and, then, and, then, absolutely. And, then, and then if not, change his petition so it'd be like his, represent, his representatives walk a lap to acknowledge what happens or something different. But I, I, again, because I feel like we're not there yet. Like I don't think yeah. we can be. I don't think one hundred and ten thousand people at the MCG this September can be trusted, given on the the duality of responses mm. that occurred after this documentary. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's nice to see. Like, I do like to see this type of movement happening because obviously the people who are starting this petition and signing it are the people who do want to send a message to Adam to to show their support, which is great. But I also think, I mean. I can't see him ever wanting to do it for one. Correct, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's an interesting point to make sure that his um, feelings are considered. But I also feel like the AFL and AFL fans don't deserve him to do that for them. And I think that would be such a nice little bow to tie on the end of something like this is to have him come out and do a lap of honour. And I think And then everything that, is redeemed. It's exactly. a Hollywood movie ending. And I not, don't, yeah. we don't deserve that. We as fans don't deserve that. The AFL does not deserve that. This is so far beyond being finished. Um, I don't think he should give us that part of himself because we don't deserve it. The more pertinent one for mine is that I think this year he becomes available for the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame and I'll be mean, what happens there because I'd much rather him be invited to the Hall, of, like inducted to the Hall of Fame because he should be dual Premiership player, dual general medalist, all time uh, Sydney Swan and Indigenous player in the game numbers. He is a lock for a Hall of Fame, but then you give him his platform, so like he gets to he gets to do his speech and gets to say whatever he wants to say and allow him to be the person that he was trying to be when he was a player that you took away from him. Because he had he had the ability to to progress the, the sporting zeitgeist so much further the forward thinking. Than, what, than what could have happened. Yeah. And so now he needs the AFL to back him in. And that will be the more, like, the AFL should do everything they can to get him to turn up to the Hall of Fame night so then he has the platform as opposed to a, a grand final parade where he's kind of like... Silent yeah. and lauded, but not able to. But speak. also, it's just hugely vulnerable. Like you're yeah. at the mer- and you're hugely at- vulnerable. Yeah, mm. you're at the mercy you're- of the mob again. Yes. Yeah, which is essentially what he retired to get away from. Mm. So, a couple of little tie-ons to finish the conversation. We'll put everything that we've mentioned in the reading notes. Um, alternate and Indigenous media sources that I would recommend. The first one is obviously NITV. Um, Mangrook Footy Show on a Thursday. Absolute must watch. Um, the second one is Indigenous X or at Indigenous X on Twitter. They are all Indigenous independent media. You can donate to them via a Patreon program. So you can sign up. So you can do a dollar a month, $10 a month, $30 a month, $100 a month, and it goes up and it just drops out your bank account direct debit. Really, really important. They regularly contribute columnists to The Guardian in the opinion section. Um, 100% a place that you should be going. The third one is a podcast that I have not started listening to, but I'm absolutely ready to listen to. It's called A Cuppa and a Yarn. It's by the New South Wales um, Aboriginal Land Council. It's about 40-minute interviews with prominent Indigenous Australians from New South Wales, um, many of them involved in the Land Rights Network. Um, would 100% recommend going to any of those places to try and get more of your media than you already are because as we mentioned earlier in the conversation um, so much of the mainstream media is not giving you prominent indigenous voices regularly Come on, you can't let me get away. I'm not gonna let you